Welcome back to the Comparative Government and Politics Podcast. I'm Daniel Lazar, and I'm grateful that you're tuning in. This here, my friends, is a special episode. For in this episode, I get to introduce you to my friend Obi. Born in Texas, raised in Port Harcourt, Nigeria, and currently living down the street from me in Berlin, Obi is large. He contains multitudes. He's a clever, kind, thoughtful, worldly person, and I enjoy him tremendously. The hope of today's conversation is to just give you a snapshot into the life of one Nigerian fella, someone who I'm honored to call a friend, and someone who I hope you too will find, like me, an affection and an affinity for. To be clear, our effort here is not to endeavor into the pantheon of Nigerian politics, but rather to take a deeper dive into the life of a good man who is raised in complicated circumstances. I could say more, but I won't. Instead, I will just say, hey, Obi, welcome to the Kogo Pod. Nice to have you here, man. Hey, tell my people, where were you born and raised? Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. I was born in Houston, Texas, but I was raised in Nigeria in a small town called Portaka in the south of Nigeria, so in River State. And Obi, you have careened back and forth between Houston and River State, back to Houston. Now you're in Berlin with me. You're a man of the world. Can I ask you, what does it mean to you to be Nigerian? Yeah, I've had an opportunity to live in several countries, multiple cities. I'm a lot of things. I am Texan. I am Nigerian. I am Ohioan. I guess I'll be Berliner eventually if I stay here. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but to be Nigerian, I think there are a few things that are expected or when I say characteristics uh, of a, you know, when someone says Nigerian, what that means. It goes back to our culture. So I'm from Eastern Nigeria. So the Igbo tribe. So there is an inbuilt respect of elders. There is the honesty, hard work. There is a culture of, I say, being, you know, bootstrapping yourself, kind of scrappy. So being able to pick yourself up from the ground, not rely on handouts, work hard for yourself to make something. That's more around the, the culture and the behaviors. But another aspect of being Nigerian, at least being Igbo, is the music, the movies, the food. So you have a love for Gary and soup, for example. You have your favorite soups. That's also a mark of a typical, I, I would be, I'll focus on Igbo uh, because Nigeria is a, as we'll probably get into, really big country, a lot of tribes. So what does it mean to be Nigerian? Uh, for me, a, a more accurate question would be, what does it mean to be Igbo? So let me press on this a little bit. I do want to know what it means to be Igbo. 
And in a moment here, I'll ask you, but I don't want to allow you to evade the question entirely. <laughs> what does it mean to be Nigerian to you? The general meaning of being Nigerian, it more often ties back to identifying Nigerian music, speaking the vernacular of the street, pidgin English, understanding the slangs and the ways we make fun of our country, the Nigerian clothing, Nigerian movies, identifying with them, with the, the movies and the tropes in the movies. There's also an expectation of, it, it's, it's, it also applies to the Igbo culture, but in Nigeria as, as well, there's an expectation of hard work, of striving to be better. There's an expectation that you will not rest in your laurels. I think Nigerians are proud of these things I mentioned. That's really, for me, what it means day to day to be Nigerian. I want to cherry pick one facet of Nigerian life that you put your finger on, and that's Nigerian humor. And tempted as I am to ask you about Nigerian movies, the two are intertwined. Talk to me about Nigerian humor, because it's a thing, isn't it? Nigerian humor is a thing. The it's <laughs> yeah. The listeners don't get to see the smile on your face when you look up into the sky. When you all right, well, go on, try. I'm trying my best to describe it. I've never been asked to describe it, even though I know clearly what it means, what it sounds like, and uh -huh. I can spot it from ten miles away. <laughs> but it's hard to talk about what it is. It's it's raw. It's not a bulger, but it's not afraid to be, you know, to cut to the meat. It's not shy to talk about controversies. It's a lot of times related to painful aspect of Nigerian culture that we found no other way to deal with, but just to laugh about it, be it corruption or you know, people living underneath the poverty line or the lack of jobs or the list goes on. They're, they're usually tied to things that people, you know, they're real issues and are really, you know, serious issues, but somehow when you make a joke out of it, it's actually, it's actually funnier because you, you see the pain in the, in the joke. It's the gallows humor, right? It's the, the it's the laugh that hides the tears. It is. It? It's, it's or the anger. Or, or the anger. It's a, it's a touching. It's a it's a very effective humor. Uh, you know, because everyone really understands it. Before I go on to tap into what it means to you to be Ebo, can I ask? Are you? proud to be Nigerian or to what degree are you proud to be Nigerian? Is there pride there to speak of? Yeah, there is pride. Yeah, I am proud in many different regards to be Nigerian. I can speak more about why I'm proud to be Nigerian. Please and thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Obi. It's when I first when I came back to the States as a teenager you know, we had, I had, I had a number of roommates that were also Nigerian, you know, they're like me, late teenage years, 
trying to find a way to make a living, trying to go to college and, and fend for themselves and make adults out of themselves. And what you see is this hunger to succeed, a drive. There was definitely expectation from your family members that you will do well and you will succeed and you will overcome obstacles. There is a knack for adjusting and even thriving in different environments. So, you know, regardless of language, regardless of climate, um, Nigerians do thrive across the globe. So the, the, this pride I take in that, I'm proud of how I was raised. I was, I'm proud of the experiences I had growing up in Nigeria and my family, understanding the value of family, elders, the value of respecting people, no matter what they look like, where they come from, the value of my faith as well. That's something that I grew up with. And if I was to look back, one of the most important things I feel like I, I, I value and proud of is this pretty common notion that there are things bigger than you. You are part of a community, a family, a bigger whole. It's not a very individualistic culture, generally speaking. And I'm proud of those things. As you should be. And... You know, we've had the good fortune of getting to know each other, or I should say, I've had the good fortune of getting to know you, and you put up with me, which is fine. Which is fine. (laughs) (laughs) So, tempted as I am to take a deeper dive into what it means to you to be Nigerian, I also want to dive into what it means to you to be Igbo. Right. I'm going to hazard to guess that the vast majority of our listeners haven't the slightest idea what it means to be Igbo. But I know that it means a lot to you, and you mean a lot to me. So tell us all, from your mind's eye, what does it mean to be Igbo? To be Igbo, you know that the person would obviously respect their family, have a close link to not just their nuclear family, but also their extended family, so cousins and uh, second cousins, in-laws. You have that extended family unit. That, that's part of your, your identity of family. For example, you have a you know, third cousin to your dad, but he's an uncle. You don't differentiate like from your dad's brother to your dad's second cousin or a good friend your dad grew up with. They're all, they're all uncles, and they're treated just the same. There's no difference. They can spend the night if they want to. They're always you know, welcome to dinner. There is a hardworking uh, nature to Igbos. Within Nigeria, for example, right, there are a lot of tribes that do not like the Igbos because there's an impression of, you know, they, they seem to thrive in every situation, and there's an impression that they're doing something shady to, 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 to thrive. So to be Igbo means that it, it means I, I embody those things. I embody the, 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 the love for the culture, the, the, the food, the, the music. I embody this respect for family. I am religious. I have a, an idea of a, of a greater being that, that I'm subject to. 
I am scrappy. I work hard. I thrive. I don't say no and I don't back down from a difficult situation. It's also interesting. There's also interesting, I don't know if it's been proven or not, but there's a feeling or a expectation that if you're Igbo in Nigeria, it means that you're good at business. So you can, you know, find a good deal in uh, every trade. You, know, you always know how to buy something and sell it for a profit, no matter what it is you're selling. Um, there's that idea, this idea of good with money. You can save money, you know how to invest, stuff like that. So I am guilty of that, but I don't know if it's all Igbos. <laughs> you know, we, my people have a similar reputation in the Western world. Really? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, actually. Mm -hmm. That is actually interesting because there are, there are comparisons between Jews and Igbos. So, so are we, are we going to co-author this book? <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, man. Yeah, cheers. cheers. All right. Uh, to the Jews and the Ebos taking over our respective worlds. Hey, um, since we're on the topic, right? I'm curious as to whether you'd be willing to describe how religion and tribe and ethnicity shape your upbringing. And maybe you can start here. You were talking about like if you run into it, if you if you find out that somebody is an Igbo, you know, then maybe you might be able to like commiserate or identify. Right. I want to dive into the ethnicity question more broadly, but let's start here. Do you recognize fellow Igbos when you're traversing the streets of... Port Harcourt or Lagos or Abuja? Like, is there mutual recognition of tribe? Like, how do you know if someone is likewise an Igbo or if they're an Igbo or an Yoruba or, or, or when you're in Nigeria? Right. So in the cities in Nigeria, generally, generally, it's not such a big deal because there are millions of people from the Igbo, you know, states in a big city like Port Harcourt or Lagos or Abuja. Uh, say millions, I'm exaggerating a, little, a, a bit, but there are a lot of people. So it's not a big deal if you run into someone that's speaking Igbo, for example. When I was, we were younger, uh, when I was younger, my mom would, would go uh, shopping with me, which is a totally different experience from shopping in the Western world. It's an open air market. Uh, it takes a really long time. Uh, talking about three, four hours. And a lot of the time is spent just talking uh, between the trader and the potential customer, just catching up, talking about, you know, um, how their kids are doing in school, talking about, you know, challenges they're facing uh, with whatever they're selling and so on. But what I noticed is that most of those traders that my mom would go to are Igbo. You know, even though this market obviously had people from all the major tribes in Nigeria, but people tend to go and buy from people of the same ethnicity. My mom, my dad would, would favor Igbo mechanic, for example, versus someone else. But in a day-to-day, -day, you don't necessarily have people say, oh, you're Igbo, you know, let's talk. Where are you from? And, you know, you don't have all that. Now, if you were to go on the macro scale globally, that exists. So, um, you know, for example, I'm checking in 
or of going to security in Chicago. And uh, the security agent actually Igbo, they see my name and they automatically start speaking Igbo to me. Really? And they ask me about where am I from and where my parents from, what village, what state. They're usually disappointed because I don't speak great Igbo. So they're just like shaking their head. <laughs> but there is the automatic like, oh, tell me more about where you're from. You know, give me some details. Do I know you? Are you my brother? Are you my uncle? <laughs> so there's there's that. And that happens wherever whenever I travel. It still happens today. So yeah, so that's those are the ways I feel like, you know, the tribe plays into and played into my upbringing. If you had to choose between identifying more as an Igbo or more as a Nigerian, and if you can humor me with the idea that this might be a fair choice. What are you more likely to identify with? Igbo, Nigerian? The answer is it depends. Who's asking? Me. Nigerian. Because you wouldn't know what it means to be Igbo. Not really. That, that's because your answer didn't fucking help. <laughs> <laughs> but it depends on who's asking, right? Because most people say, uh, most people like they have an idea of, uh, of of Nigeria, what it means to be Nigerian. They they think they know what it means, and a lot of times there's a negative connotation, right? I just talked about the you know the unicorns and rainbows part of being Nigerian. Yes, but there's a whole other aspect of what it means to be Nigerian that I don't identify with. A lot of people identify with, right? All the scams and the you know the the the, the shady business dealings and the Nigerian princes and all the stuff you hear. Yeah. it's a double edged sword. I think. If you're asking me and you're African from a different African country, a lot of Africans actually know the different tribes. So I can tell you, hey, I'm Igbo. And it means more to me. It's more it's more significant to say that. But if you were from New York, you know, I'm Nigerian to you, right? You don't know the tribes. If everyone knew about the tribes a bit more, then I would always say Igbo. Uh, I think I identify more with that than being Nigerian. Because Nigerian is it's, it's a lot of things, right? There's parts of Nigeria that I don't identify with at all, right? It's like a northern part of Nigeria. The culture, the food, the music, the the way they live life, um, ideologies, all that is completely foreign to me. But they're also Nigerian. So I probably have more in common with a Californian than I have with people from northern Nigeria. Hey, man, listen, I hear you. I'm from <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> I, I have more in common with a Berliner than I do with a Texan. No offense, Texas. <laughs> no, no offense taken. It's hard to identify with Texans. The identification game is super vexed, right. but I still want to push into it a little bit further. Right. I want to tap into young Obi, not older, worldly, wise Obi, but... 16-year-old, 18-year-old Obi as a high school kid, when you look back on those years in your life, what did ethnicity and religion and tribe mean to you then? Honestly, it didn't mean much. Yeah? I think back and I had friends where honestly today, I'm not really sure where they're from. <laughs> Or they, what religion they they um, they either religious or not religious, and they were really good friends. They're great friends. More important, what played into it was our socioeconomic level, right? 
could we go to the same schools? Could we afford the same like after school lessons? What did we do for the holidays? Are we both having lunch money? That was more an identifier. Do we have access to the same parties, for example? Could we both afford the same video game consoles or the latest video games? So that financial, social, economic like strata actually had a lot more in common with my friends. If we could all hang out and do the same things after school, I don't care where you're from, if you go to church, you don't go to church. It didn't really matter, actually. How universal do you think that is in a Nigerian context, that class actually supersedes ethnicity, religion, and tribe? My honest belief is when you're young, which is before you get into the working years of your life, there isn't an emphasis on the ethnic divisions, religious divisions, that is very much emphasized in adulthood. I didn't get a chance to start a career in Nigeria, but it seems that somewhere along the line, there's a switch that happens but I, I don't know the why, but I feel like at some point there is a transition, yeah, where ethnicity, religion becomes more of a friction point. But as, as young people, I don't remember, I don't recall any of that friction being there between me and my friends and between other groups of friends. But keep in mind, there's a huge, huge disclaimer here, right? Nigeria, Northern Nigeria, Nigerians don't necessarily live in huge numbers in the South. So when I say South, that includes the West, the East, and the proper South. Right? So you don't have them in large numbers. So like you won't go to school and it won't be maybe 30% Hausa or Fulani. That's not the case. You might have 5%, 3%. And those there are usually from a higher socioeconomic group. So their parents are oil workers or bankers and stuff, stuff like that. This is me theorizing. I assume they have more liberal views versus the views that are kept up north. So when I say I didn't see this friction, it was between the southerners, the so westerners, uh, so Yorubas, Igbos, Edo, Delta, you know, all these more southern tribes. I didn't see the friction there when I was young, but we were we didn't have Hausas and Fulanis in the mix, which are northern Nigerians. Hmm. If I'm hearing you right, you're saying that religion, ethnicity, and tribe played not only no real divisive role in your childhood, but almost no substantial role at all. That the only substantial division was class, right? Like who could afford a particular gaming console and who couldn't? Am I hearing you right? That was the biggest divider. Hmm. You know, we were in a school, for example, and, you know, it's British style. So we had uniforms. We had a checkered blue in, in younger schools, I guess the equivalent of like kindergarten and uh, middle school. The checkered blue shirt and uh, dark blue shorts. And he was button up. It's a short sleeve button up checkered uh, shirt. And every semester or every year, 
there's no rule on getting a new set or using the old one, right? So for example, some kids will wear the same uniform that were, they wore last year. You can tell, you know, the kid grew bigger, it's a little tighter. You see some stains from last semester, it's threadbare, stuff like that. And they get picked on, right? Right. They get picked on, they end up being ostracized from the bigger group. So, you know, kids can be mean, right? They, they go deep <laughs> into, into those targets. Uh -huh. And that's where the Nigerian humor comes into play and just rip you apart. So that that caused more separation than tribes. I, I don't know what tribe they were in, they were from. It's just they didn't dress like the other kids. So they got picked on. Now, you spent most of your school years in Port Harcourt, the oil capital of Nigeria. What brought your family there? In the 80s, my dad was offered a position as a lecturer, a professor in a university. And I think back then, the Naira still had really you know, strong value. I think that's what, what really motivated them. But for a series of reasons I don't fully understand, my dad chose to move back to Nigeria with the family. And I never got a full accounting of all the decision factors, but that's the biggest one that I know of. It was a good job. It seemed like a stable country at a time, and it was an opportunity, so they made the move. This is the late 1980s. Right. So shortly after Nigeria received like a windfall World Bank loan, 86? Yeah. Things were economically moving in the right direction. Oil prices were very high in the late 1980s. Correct. And that probably drove up the value of the Naira. Your family moves back to Port Harcourt because your dad finds a job. You spent your first four years in Texas. So age four to 18, you're studying and growing up and messing around in the oil capital of West Africa. Right. I have a thousand questions about that. Okay. You and I have discussed some of them over our time together. I guess, let's start here. To what degree and in what ways were you aware, for example, when you were a teenager, of the role of oil in Southwest Nigeria? We were very aware, keenly aware that those that worked in oil companies live on a live in a different class than the rest of us and this is mainly focused on foreign oil companies because their pay compensation structure and the benefit structure was based on european laws i think of the time so they were probably making easily uh, tens of times as much money as a normal person would so they were affording big houses nice cars you have a keen awareness that you're not like them. So full disclosure, my dad actually worked in an oil company, worked in a Nigerian national petroleum company. So 
the big differentiator was that he was it was still a local company versus a foreign uh, uh, oil company. There was a huge uh, gap there. So we live the middle class life, but those people from those companies, we would consider them living an upper class life. So for example, in Portaka, we had a, this is gonna be good. <laughs> we had a compound uh-huh. that was run by Shell, residential compound for, uh, for Shell workers. So in the middle of a pretty poor, what did I say poor neighborhood? Yeah, it, it, it was. You know, you don't have running water outside. Uh, you have inconsistent power, bad roads. In the middle of this situation, you have this glowing, gleaming beacon that was a compound that never lost power. They had three sets of barbed wire fences that were easily 13, 15 foot high. And inside this amazing beacon on the hill, you have several gyms, you have you know heated swimming pools, you have basketball courts, you have tennis courts, you have you know, really nice manicured lawns. You have kids riding on bicycles, enjoying their nice Saturday morning. But right outside of it, you have this dire poverty. So, you, you know, every time you drive past that, you are reminded of the separation of class. And there are times, this is the cool part, there are times that, you know, the, the ultimate challenge slash like bragging right would be people like us, the outsiders, finding our way into this compound. And people devise all kinds of ways. Um, you try and impersonate someone and try and get under the fence. Um, if you can get in and get out without being caught, that was always like a huge win, uh, but you can get caught. And the punishment would <laughs> range from everything to, you know, they just, they just pick you up and dump you in the middle of nowhere. You have to find your way back home or they might lock you up. Any of a whole range of usually not like really severe punishment, but more embarrassing and very inconvenient uh, punishment. But, you know, it's a thing people aspired to sneak into the shell compound and, and finally play a basketball game or swim. And they have these kids that live there, right? And they just drive in with their company cars and AC. And you're like, man, you were reminded constantly of how you just not like them. And you lived in the compound. I did not. <laughs> and you used to sneak into the compound. I will not say that on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the statute of limitations are. <laughs> for for sneaking in the compounds in the 80s in Port Harcourt? I don't know, man. I don't know. We'll keep it safe. Clearly, you did not because you're a law-abiding young Cannot man. Cannot confirm or deny but I know yeah. that it was a thing. Were you envious of the kids who lived in the compound? Yes, there was definitely envy. You went to school with those very kids. Correct. Though this might be personal, I want to ask the same question the opposite way. Was there shame that you didn't live on the compound? No, no, there wasn't shame. Um, there are a lot of us that did not, and we looked at those kids as privileged and lucky, but we didn't feel shame in our day-to-day. Did you begrudge the kids who lived in the compound 
be honest, there's no statute of limitations on grudges. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. I have friends that live Come on, there. Man. I'm being honest. I had friends that live there. You know, you have the kids that are just spoiled and they get everything they want. You know, every semester they have designer this, designer that. So you kind of look at them and you're like, yeah, they're, they're rich kids, right? And he, he, we didn't have grudges per se. We just wanted to get in and have fun with them. And they'll sneak us in whenever they could. You are a better man than I am. So <laughs> no envy, no grudge. You just wanted to sneak in or get snuck in sometimes. that's it that's what you're saying that's to me. really what it boiled down to huh you have to understand right this is the elite few that went into this compound and had a good time and we didn't think of our life day-to-day as being unnaturally hard we didn't think of it as we're suffering yes that's something it's i guess it needs it needs to be said right we didn't have regular power Right, power would maybe you know come for three days, go for two days. You know, sometimes when it comes, is what we call half current, which basically is good enough for a light bulb, but it can't carry a fridge. Um, we would usually catch rain, trap rainwater. The rainwater had all the pollutants from the shell burnoff rig close by, so it's like black. You know, you let the water, you let the black stuff settle after a couple of days. They can use the water to like flush your toilet and stuff. To get drinking water, you would get a wheelbarrow and you would go out in the, on Saturday, uh, maybe a distance of three, four miles, and you make several trips. But all that was normal, right? So it wasn't like, oh man, my life is so hard. I think that probably comes if you have grown up in privilege and then you have to deal with that. You, you think of how hard it is. But if you do it every day and that's how you grew up, you don't think of your life as hard. You don't, you don't feel a grudge against others that have a different life. You just, you feel some envy, right? But you don't, there's no hatred, at least on my end and people I knew, there was not like, oh, we hate these people because they're doing so well. We, we hated the system. We hated the system that there were no jobs. We hated the fact that there was so much corruption. To get ahead, you had to get corrupt. Again, you had to pay someone. Uh, and that was something that we knew of and we were aware of. That's something we were aware of. It's just how much it sucked to to get ahead. You had to pay pay away everywhere, and those people had the the resources too. So we were envious of them. But I had a good time. I mean, I had a lot of fun growing up in Nigeria, even though I didn't have all the trimmings of the shell campus. So you touched on it. So let's dive into it now. Right. There's a rot at the core of this entire enterprise, and there's no doubt that Shell and Exxon and Chevron and other multinational corporations were not acting in good faith, and that the Nigerian government, likewise, was not acting in good faith, and that there was corruption and if one would like evil at the core of this oil extraction enterprise. Correct. Can you talk a little bit about the level of awareness that you had of this unjust, corrupt enterprise as a teen? Right. So we're also acutely aware of that. And that, that was that was frustrating. I think that's what made us more sad and kind of hopeless in Nigeria, 
was the corruption and lack of opportunities. Um, it wasn't about the, you know, you have to fetch water and powers and it's consistent or the bad roads, for example, every rainy season, the roads are just complete shit. It was more of the fact that you couldn't get ahead without paying someone off. So we were, we were you'd be aware of that. I think from as soon as you were maybe 11 or 12, you could get aware of this idea of this normal behavior of, you know, paying off, for example, police band that are running checkpoints. You have to just pay them. And I remember asking my dad, like, why, you know, why are we doing this? And answer is like, that's how it is. If you don't do it, they make your life a living hell. And uh, people have been killed for refusing to pay off cops and whoever that has power. So we were, we were acutely aware of it. And it was, um, I think it was a source of sadness and, you know, sorts of grudges to the people in power. Everyone hated the police because they were seen as this corrupt disease that we had to deal with. They didn't provide any security, but they just took our money and uh, threatened you, you know, you don't pay up. So, yeah, I think every night, even Nigerian kids are very, very much aware of that. You know, there's cases where, oh man, so many examples, but you're trying to get a contract with a company to do something, but you have to bribe upfront 20, 30 officials just so you're considered for this contract. So you you put the cost of the bribe into this contract, but if you do get it, you get your money back and you paid upfront, plus a bunch of overhead that you want to pay yourself for the trouble of bribing all these people. And the last priority is actually getting the stuff done. Right. Right. So that was very much uh, a reality. And we saw it, and we had many examples that affected us, right? You know, roads that were supposedly contracted out to be built, but just never got built and they were bad. Or, you know, a new buildings in school that never got built or were built uh, very poorly. It was actually surprising for us when something was built and it was like decent quality. I, I could speak for my, friend, my friends and myself. One of the, the driving factors that made us want to leave the country and, and look for a better life somewhere else. But this inequity of opportunities that is deeply rooted in corruption. I want to ask you two very blunt questions before we get into your escape from Nigeria. The first is this. As a successful, middle-aged, global dude who's learned a lot since he left Nigeria, does it make you angry? And if not, how does it make you feel when you think about the endemic corruption that in many ways defines Nigerian life? Yeah, it does. It makes me it makes me angry. It makes me deeply frustrated. Uh, makes me feel deeply powerless. It makes me feel deeply angry. How the wealth has been mis- mismanaged. How corruption is the primary objective of every official that I can think of in forever. I mean, a few officials have proven us wrong, but generally speaking, that's the main thing they're going for. How much money can I put in my pocket before I get fired? It's really, it's really sad. It's um, there's so many ways that it makes me, it makes me upset, right? I've had friends in Nigeria looking to start, you know, business opportunities that actually could have been profitable. I want to sell, you know, medical parts that you cannot easily find in Nigeria, and 
I need someone to help me source them. Okay, not a bad idea from the get-go, but if you have to deal with the corruption of importation and clearing all your items through customs and all the people along the way that want to get paid off, uh, it automatically fails. Like before it even starts, before you can germinate the idea, it's already it's already a bad idea because it won't be financially viable unless you have a, a channel. So it's it's frustrating in so many different ways where people actually have good ideas and, and have the motivation to work and get, get ahead. They, they're blocked because of corruption in one form or the other. So it's, yeah, it's deeply frustrating. So because I feel a sense of remorse that I asked such a leading question about anger vis-a-vis corruption, I'm going to ask a follow-up. Like, I asked the question in a leading way because I find myself upset by the corruption there. Right. I'm fortunate to be able to have a handful of Nigerian friends, and I have a moral sense of righteous indignation on their behalf. Right. Not that that helps anything, (laughs) (laughs) but I have it just the same. So to ask a mildly less leading question, Obi, (laughs) given the endemic poverty in Nigeria, to what degree are you empathic towards the corruption? And to put it another way, if my family was deeply impoverished, you know, living on, you know, a buck 50 a day or two bucks a day, I'd engage in corruption to give my kid a better life. I'm not above that. Mm-hmm. Do you find ways to cultivate empathy for people who do immoral things in an immoral space? I'm trying to figure out how that's not... I see your face. I'm so sorry about that question. No, I, <laughs> but I, I do want to know your answer just the same. I'm trying to understand how that's a, a less leading question. But regardless of that qualifier, <laughs> um, I, do, I do have some empathy for those. But it's limited. It's very restricted. There's, there's things that you need to do to get into college, for example, where... Uh, in college, for example, this is, good, this is a great one, right? You are told sometimes in begin, begin, the beginning of a semester, the professor shows up and says, well, the only way to get an A in this class is if you pay me $5,000 in class. They say that. If you want a B, it's $3,000. If you want a C, 1000 All right, cool. Here's your first assignment. And then you go through class and you do whatever you want to do. You learn, maybe you learn, maybe you don't learn. But for that person that has to pony up that money to pass this class because they're trying to get a career to pay for their family to eat, I, I empathize. I totally do. Because it's, there isn't a way around it. For those that go about stealing millions and millions and 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 just dashing in accounts and destroying the country i don't empathize with those people if there was a priority outside of making as much money as possible if there's a priority say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna take some 
but my priority is still building the bridge I said I was going to build, or the road I said I was going to build, or the water project, or whatever. I'm still going to deliver that thing, but I'm going to have 5% on top. I can live with that. Um, not great, not exemplary, but okay, cool. You still deliver the thing we need to deliver. When you go about stealing the whole 100% of the you know, funds, and then you ask for extra funds, and you still not a 25% on top of the 100%, and there's nothing to show for that, you know, I, I cannot understand that. That's the part that makes me so upset. Um, so, yeah. So next time you and I take a walk through the park drinking whiskey, we'll talk about the problem of scale vis-a-vis -vis corruption. <laughs> yes. The slope is slippery, isn't it? It is. It is. There's no fine line. It's really easy to jump over. Yeah. So then my second question before we uh, proceed, because I do want to respect your time. If there's an example of corruption that has walked the fine line or jumped right over it in Nigeria, it's the role of oil companies. You grew up in Port Harcourt. Right. An entire city that in many ways was born of corruption. Right. You grew up trying to go over or under the fence of the shell compound. <laughs> with permission, of course. Because, you know. <laughs> I want to know how you see the role of multinational oil companies in Port Harcourt and Nigeria more broadly? Right. It's a complicated question. I mean, there are many facets to this. The most naive way I can think of, right, there was a resource in the ground and needed to be pulled out, cleaned up, and sold. And people that could do this, the expertise was not local at the time. So the arrangements were made with these companies that came into the region, extracted the resource, helped build some infrastructure to clean it, to transport it, and to sell it. And the local government took a portion of the sale. Should have worked out pretty good. A problem, one of many problems was that these companies are not incentivized to follow the rule of like international law. They're more incentivized to get money quick, get results quick. And when no one's really enforcing or looking at what's right or wrong, they go down the shortest path possible, which is usually bribery and some corruption. It's naive to look at it in terms of these are just bad companies doing bad things. You have to look at it from both sides and say that they were enabled by the local governments to do a lot of what they did. And they couldn't, there's no line, right? In a, in a lawless world, you don't know when you've gone too far. Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep paying someone off, bribing a, 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 a village chief to drill a well in his land, bribe someone to take a shortcut for, you know, cleanup activities. You don't know where that line is. These companies that have operated, they, they operate in the U.S. under a totally different set of rules. Same company, but you go to Nigeria and it's completely 
flawless in terms of how they operate, how they operate for a really long time. Now there's more cases coming to light. So that fine line we talk about is, is completely blurred in Portaco. It's, it's completely blurred in the Niger Delta. These companies didn't know where they were walking on. They were just chugging along, whatever they needed to do to make a profit and whatever they could pay someone to get done, they did. So there's plenty of blame to go around. I think there's so many facets to it. I mean, you know, there's political facets to it, there's a cultural facets to it and so on. Yeah. But yeah, that's a short version. It's an impossible question, and I'm sorry to have asked it of you. Don't apologize. It's all good. I, I want to ask you but one more question, and then to dive into my students' questions. Of course. So I'm going to try to ask a less leading question. Tempted as I may be to ask you how all of those factors played into your decision to move to Texas— that would be a leading question. So mm -hmm. far be it from me <laughs> to ask a really leading far. question. So I'll ask you a more neutral question. So Obi, why did you decide to leave Nigeria for Texas? Like what went into that decision? It was simple. At the time I was leaving, Nigeria's university going on strike, which is something that happens. So we had been a strike for six months. Basically, I was sitting at home with no plans of going back to school and no idea when I'll graduate. So that was easy to like think of like, well, I need to keep moving my life. I need to have some plan to finish college and get into the workforce. That was one aspect to it. So it was a strike and an you know, opportunity came up. My dad actually mentioned it to me. He's like, what do you think about you know going back to the States now? The second part of it was a notion that there were more opportunities. I knew I could probably make more of myself, but I wasn't sure what more meant. Because living in Nigeria, you have you don't have a good concept, a good grasp of what does it really mean to go to college in the US and you know work in the US. You just know it's better. Full disclosure, when I left Nigeria, I thought I will come back to Nigeria after getting my degree. Even though I was a US citizen, I am a US citizen. I did not think I'll live in the US long term. Uh, but the U.S. has a way of like enticing you and keeping you there. And Nigeria, it's, again, it's, it's called burritos, Obi, I believe. <laughs> it's a dollar menu. That's what it is. The dollar <laughs> menu and three tacos for two bucks in San, right. in, in San Antonio or Houston, right? That's right. And, uh, you know, two dollar wells where you can, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the U.S. has a, a appeal, but. That's really what drove me. It was at the time, it was just, uh, it wasn't political instability and all the other big things. It was more about, I want to graduate college someday. I want to be an engineer. And this thing here seems like it's going to be forever, the strike. And the second piece is like, I know that um, I'll have more opportunities having a US degree. So that was really what drove me at the time. All right. That makes sense. Hey, I know I told you that was my last question, but I, this is a question more out of my curiosity than. Oh, good anything having to do with comparative government and politics. Look, Houston has a sizable black population. Can you talk about how, as a black man raised mostly in Nigeria, you interfaced with the African-American communities of Houston? Right. Not much. 
Um, yeah. yeah, to be completely honest, you know, there there was, there is, I think, still a a disconnect, a notion that, you know, those that are coming from continental Africa are different. And in some cases, there's a feeling of like better than African-Americans that probably have some heritage tied to slavery. There was there were efforts to separate us, like part of the African diaspora's culture is a separation of like, well, that's not, you're not African, you're African-American, we're African, we're different. So there wasn't much interaction, actually. So there wasn't much. I mean, in Houston, I mainly hung out with Africans like me. So Kenyans, Guyanians, Nigerians, South Africans, Zimbabweans, Congolese. Yeah, mostly hung out with those. And then living in Houston day to day, I didn't really have that interaction. So maybe in closing, before we get to our students' questions. Right. What would you like young people with an interest in Nigerian politics and culture to know about Nigerian youth? I would say Nigerian youth are pretty unique in how resilient they are and pretty, they're pretty inventive. I would say Nigerian youth are not very different from youth everywhere else in the world. You know, they like the video games, they like their sports teams, they really like the football teams, uh, British football teams, so Premier League. Um, they're not that different. They, 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 these youth are not different from youth in other countries. Um, they just don't have as much opportunity. Yeah, we love to have a good time. Dancing is part of, you know, a way of life. And, and music is so important to our, how we live. Similar to youth everywhere, right? Songs are different. The dance moves are different. But the behavior is probably the same. You know, I'm looking at my students' questions now, and I'm realizing that our conversation rather inadvertently got to a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So let me just ask you one or two yeah. of the questions that they ask you. Are you game? Are you in? Yeah, you still I'm got in. the energy for it? I got the energy. I think really there's only three questions that are outstanding. All right. Despite our conversation, here's one. And this is from a groovy kid called Oscar. All right. He asks, did you feel threatened by the violence throughout the country? Which country? All right, man. All right. I think he meant Nigeria, but you could answer both i mean touche and go ahead (laughs) (laughs) um but before college the main fear for the violence was from thieves armed robbers they come to your house um if you don't have money or whatever they're looking for you can get killed so that was a real fear we had friends that were robbed uh, luckily, he didn't get killed, but we had others that we knew about that got killed. That was a big source of fear. The next bucket were actually the police. Indiscriminate shootings or what they call accidental discharge was like a really cool term they came up with. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, it was a mistake. We're not uncommon. And, you know, it, it could stem from mostly because they're, you know, they want to bribe for something and you don't give them enough 
or you maybe you already bribed them in the morning and they want another bribe in the afternoon and you're like well i already gave you money in the morning what's going on um you know that was or or you get caught by mistake in a crossfire where they're fighting whoever and you get shot when i visited over the years after i left yes i there were some days that were scary where i go to a bar and I'm told that, well, it was under curfew. You shouldn't have gone there. Your life was at danger. You just didn't, you just didn't know it. Anyway, that was all with the outside of college stuff. When I got into college, the violence that I had to deal with was with the cults, which is a whole different story that could probably take hours. The Nigeria universities have an infestation of these grand gangs that are called cults. Um, and they would, yeah, they'll shoot indiscriminately cult wars so you think of a gang situation like i don't know i'm making something up here right Something like east la or whatever where gangs are fighting for domination they wear their colors you know you can't go in the wrong bar blah 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 all those dynamics existed on campus and uh if you talk to the wrong girl you went to the wrong party you went to the wrong neighborhood in a ca campus at night you could you can get killed so that was the main violence we face on, on campus uh, in, in school. And you learn all the unspoken rules of don't go here, don't eat there, don't talk to that girl, uh, you know, don't dress too flashy, you might grab their attention. You know, they had this whole bunch of things you shouldn't do. And even though you didn't do it, you might still end up getting their attention and they, may, they want you to join. If you don't join, then, you know, they could beat you up like my roommate or, you know, go as far as like, you know, harming someone that you care about. But yeah, so the short answer to you, the question, Oscar, is yes. There, there was a lot of impact uh, there with violence in, in Nigeria. Um, in Houston, probably a shorter, shorter story. Day-to-day, <laughs> -day, not so much, right? You know, so many accounts of, you know, living while Black in, 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 in the U.S. that I don't have to repeat all that. So I dealt with all that, right? You, you gotta be careful driving in certain neighborhoods. You have to be really careful about get pulled over. Uh, make sure you know sudden moves. Yeah, I felt unsafe a bunch of times in Houston, and it's just only from cops. So I guess cops is a common theme all the way across. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I have uh, two questions for you from a splendid young woman called Raya. The first reads as follows. How was military rule and hopes for democracy talked about? Like, was there hope for democracy and or preference for military rule? Growing up there, there wasn't much talk about a hope for democracy. If there was, it was not in any circle that I associated with. As I said, Nigerians, a lot of Nigerians did not have that experience with democracy and they didn't know what it could bring. So it wasn't a hope of something you don't really know about. So we hope for better days. We hope for jobs. We hope for security. We hope for, you know, more equitable distribution of wealth. But we didn't necessarily hope for democracy as a solution for all these things. Just hoping for security and hoping for food and jobs. It wasn't, you know, we didn't really care. It was democracy or a dictatorship. Yeah, day to day, you don't really notice, I guess. Right, you have the events that, you know, you hear a, a reporter getting missing, you hear about shootings happening, uh, where the soldiers go and demolish a village, for example. 
for day-to-day life outside of these like really drastic de- devastating events wasn't affected so much by the military rule so it's not a thing we we, we dealt with and hope for different and Rhea offers you but one more question sure she asks how have you maintained a connection with your Nigerian heritage? By visiting every so often, by listening to music. For the music, you can get a good feel of new slangs, new terminology, new clothing, new practices. My main way I keep in contact, keep in touch is my family, right? My family's all in Houston. So when we, when we hang out, right, we still speak broken. We talk about Nigerian issues, we eat Nigerian food. Yeah, my, my dad is still in Nigeria, so uh, I talk to him, and my brother's in Nigeria as well, so I talk to him, and I, I, can, I hope to visit whenever this lockdown ends. Well, my friend, you speak to the virtues of your people, Igbo people, as resilient and as inventive. And you are just that. You are resilient, you are inventive, and I will add you are clever and empathic, and I am so grateful for my own edification and for that of my students and whoever may be listening, that you're willing to share some of yourself, some of your experiences with us. Thank you. It was really fun to dive into your life with you in this particular setting. I mean, this is like a fun codification of the conversations we've had. It's been fun. And I know that you and I will have many more conversations. I think for you and I, this is just a catalyst for a hundred more conversations. Right, right. And for our listeners, well, they're just lucky they got to hear from you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm lucky to be here. Thank you so much. I cannot explain how appreciative I am. Yeah, that's been my experience. And thanks for giving me a chance to share some of it. Yo, Obi, I can't thank you enough. This was You're welcome. really fruitful. I learned a lot. You're all right, kid. You're all right. I'm going to keep you around. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>